Wow, amen. It's great to sing with you. I think one of the greatest blessings I enjoy as a pastor is being able to sing with you side by side, uh, sing the praises of God. Um, I don't think worship on Sunday morning is about a band or about uh, instrumentalists or leaders. It's about the body coming together and singing side by side songs to encourage one another and songs that are uh, worshipful to the Lord. And as we were singing our songs today, I could just couldn't help but think of Christ. And I hope that as we sang that song, uh, that it is well with your soul. I hope that's true of you today. It's well with your soul because your sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to his cross. And we bear it no more. Uh, so thank you for singing those songs. And what a joy and privilege to be able to sing with you. At this time, we'd like to dismiss children to Children's Church. So children ages K-4 through third grade, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. And uh, you'll go back to the Welcome Center area where you'll meet a junior church worker that will walk you over there. Each child needs a check-in label. So please make sure, uh, parents, that you uh, help them with that. Uh, there are people in the Welcome Center who can help you with that as well if you don't know how to do that. If you're new and you want to go with them to the children's ministry location and see it and check it out, you can do that and then come on back and join us uh, in just a few moments here. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17 uh, this morning. Uh, Genesis chapter 17. Uh, we're going to be working through a text that talks about the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, uh, the sign of circumcision. And so we thought, well, you know, this could be a good time for children to go to children's church. Uh, and so uh, we, we uh, go through the scripture section by section, verse by verse uh, in the Bible. And we think it's all relevant and helpful and significant for us as followers of Jesus. And I'm sure that as we go through this text today, uh, if you pay close attention to the ancient text about ancient people and symbols and signs, that uh, by the end of the sermon, if you pay close attention, God will show you how this is relevant and applicable to you uh, in your life today as a follower of Jesus Christ as well. Well, as we continue our study through the book of Genesis, we're in a chapter, Genesis chapter 17, uh, in uh, the, the book where... Uh, God reaffirms his covenant promises to Abraham and to Sarah. And uh, in this chapter, Genesis chapter 17, I said that the whole chapter uh, can be arranged around five speeches that God makes to Abram. So as you have Genesis 17 open there in front of you in your Bible, let your eyes just kind of scan down some of the verses that I mentioned here so you can see these. In the middle of verse 1, it says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him. And you get down to verse 3, and near the beginning of that verse, it says, and God said to him. Then you get down to verse 9, in the beginning of that verse, it says, and God said. Again, at the beginning of verse 15, it says, and God said. And then one last one, the beginning of verse 19, it says, God said. The first part of this chapter is arranged around five speeches that God makes to Abraham. And the biblical author Moses wants you to see that so you can hold it together and recognize 
the main points of this text. Now, when God decides to come and to appear or to speak with someone, it is always a big deal. So in Genesis chapter 17, after God gives some opening commands and challenges to uh, Abram, Abram responds, I think, the the way many of us would. He is overwhelmed with the sense that this is God, and he falls on his face, an act of worship before God. Abraham hadn't heard from God for 13 years, and then God breaks through the silence. And so Abram's ready to listen. Last week, uh, we looked at the first eight verses of this chapter, and we saw that in speech one and speech two, God starts by giving some opening instructions. He reveals himself with a new name. I made a big deal out of this last week. If if you weren't here, you could go back and listen to it sometime. Or just even see in your Bible here, he reveals himself as God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. I'm the God not just of might and of power, but of all all power. I'm almighty. And then he gives some opening commands to Abraham and some promises. He, he then, in the second speech, talks about uh, the seed, the promised seed and blessing that he would give to Abram and his descendants. And he, he talks about the land that they're standing on as being something that they will inherit in the future. This week, we're going to consider the final three speeches of God to Abraham. We're going to look at verses 9 through the end of the chapter. And in these speeches, God will address each one of the main characters. He's going to have a section about Abraham, that's verses 9 through 14, a section about Sarai, verses 15 through 18, and then a section about Isaac and Ishmael in verses 19 through 21. Now in this passage, God is going to ask Abram at the end to demonstrate his obedience in a radical, radical way. Um, To conform himself and his family to the Abrahamic covenant, it will not be easy for Abraham. It will not be popular at all, I'm sure, especially among the men. Uh, But it will require his radical obedience. As we go through this text, if we understand the significance of this ancient text uh, in our lives today, I think that we'll learn that even difficult commands must be obeyed. We'll learn that when God reveals himself to us, for us through his word, then we need to be ready to obey and to respond immediately. And so I want to walk through this text with you and and, and dig into these three speeches. In God's third speech, he focuses on Abraham's responsibilities, verses 9 through 14. We're just about ready to read those verses, but as we read through them, you can see that God's focus is on Abraham if you just look for the word you in your English Bible. Over and over again, he'll address Abraham as you. Here are your responsibilities as a follower of mine in covenant to me. You can also look for the word shall keep. You shall keep. He repeats that often. And so let's look at verse 9 and see what God says about Abram's responsibilities. It says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. 
You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign for the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male among your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he is born in your house and he is bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Here in verses 9 through 14, the obligation that Abraham should sense is very clear. Every male among his household must be circumcised. Although the command is clear, again, it's not, I don't think it's, it's popular, won't be popular with Abraham or his house. And although it's clear, I want to make a few important points to you from this passage, I think that would be uh, critical for us to understand if we're going to walk away from this text applying it appropriately to our life. There are three things I want to point out about this command that I think the text clearly demonstrates. First, this command is extensive. That is, every male of Abram's household must be circumcised. And the text tells us this includes those who were born in Abram's house and, the text says, those who were bought with money from foreigners. Now, as I was reading through this portion of the text, as a modern reader, that phrase, repeated twice, kind of shocked my sensibilities. Every person bought with money from foreigners. Um, But uh, what we need to, to know here is that slaves were considered to be within the household of their master. In many cases, uh, slavery during the ancient Near Eastern time was the only way that the poor would be able to survive or provide income for their families. And since I read through this and read through other texts in the Bible about slavery, I don't think it's the Bible's endorsement of slavery. It's not that. But what uh, God is doing here is he's uh, basically giving a statement addressing the economic realities of that time. And the point is, every male, no matter how they came into Abraham's household, is to be circumcised. Even infants are to be circumcised on the eighth day after they are born. I think it's the eighth day because, uh, according to Leviticus, the mother would be uh, unclean for seven days after birth, and as she comes out of that, this would be a time for the baby to be circumcised. But what, what I want you to see in this text is this is an extensive command that involves every male in Abraham's extended family. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago in Genesis chapter 14, there was a situation with Lot. Remember, Lot was captured by some wicked, evil kings and And so Abraham gets men from his household, he joins with some other men as well, and he goes up to uh, engage in a secret ambush to get Lot back. During that narrative, we found out that there were 318 males eligible for, for battle in Abraham's household. And so, as we think of this extensive command to circumcise every male, it involves all of those men and and any of the boys as well in his household. There'd be hundreds of males who are impacted by this command. It's extensive. But then second, I would add to that, it's not only extensive, it's symbolic, or it is a reminder. And we talk about circumcision a bit more here. When Abraham and his descendants participate in the rite of circumcision, 
it should be a reminder to them of God's covenant with them. That's the nature of signs and covenants. For instance, after rainfall on some local place in this world, often God will send a rainbow okay, to this world, and that rainbow is a sign. It's a reminder of God's covenant to human beings through Noza, through uh, I said Noses, Noah. <laughs> Noah. It's a reminder that God will never again destroy the world like that. That's a covenant he made, and that rainbow is a reminder. And so as we look at the sign of circumcision, though, it's a bit more mysterious. What's this a reminder of? As I thought about this, that this week, I, I came up with two possible solutions. What was it to remind the children of Abraham of? First, I think that it's likely that this is to be a reminder that they belong to God. That they are a special people, unique from the peoples around them. That they are God's people. When we wear uh, wedding rings, it is to remind us and inform others that we do not belong to ourselves. We belong to our spouse. In a sense, it could be that this is a reminder, a physical reminder, that these are special people who belong to God. They're God's. I think even more likely, this is a reminder, I think, uh, this mark on the reproductive organ is intended to remind the descendants of Abraham that the promised seed will not come through the work of men and women. The promised seed will only come and be fulfilled through the work of God. In other words, the sign is to remind people that reproduction, increasing and multiplying, is only possible through God's blessing. So when you think of the act of circumcision under the Abrahamic covenant, it it was extensive, and it's symbolic. It's a reminder that God will fulfill his word to bring about a multitude of people for Abram and his descendants. I'd add one more thing to this command, uh, one more important point that's found in verse 14, and that is this symbolic command is required. It's required. If you look down at verse 14, you learn that God makes it clear that non-participation in the sign of the covenant means non-participation in the covenant itself. If a male refuses to be circumcised, then he is to be cut off from the people because he has broken the covenant with God. Now being cut off here, it it could mean one of two things. It could mean that they're simply excommunicated from the people, treated as strangers and outsiders, no longer part of the covenant promises. Or in some cases in the Bible can also mean execution. To be cut off meant to be killed, to be executed. I don't think it's quite clear exactly what it means here whether it's they're just outsiders or they're, they're terminated. But, but the, the main idea, or the, the point is, if, if you refuse this act, you would not be a part of Abraham's covenant and God's covenant with Abraham. You would not be included in the covenant promises to him. Now, before we leave God's instructions to Abraham here, I want to just take a moment and think about what does this sign mean for us today? 
Perhaps some of those questions have already been coming to your mind. Well, what, you know, if this is Abraham, this is Old Covenant, what does that mean for us as New Covenant believers? Well, there's difference of perspectives on this among believers today. Some believers believe that this sign has been replaced. That it's been replaced. Because circumcision was a sign of the Old Covenant that involved infants, some believers today suggest that infant baptism is appropriate as a sign of the New Covenant. Okay, and so I, I want you to be aware of this. Some believers today in Jesus Christ and different denominational persuasions believe that circumcision is no longer binding or uh, we're not under it because we're in the New Covenant, but we should baptize babies because infants were circumcised when they were eight. I think the main problem with this, however, I think there's two of these. Uh, one, nowhere in the New Testament do biblical authors identify baptism as a sign that replaces circumcision. So if you're going through the New Testament, you're looking for the case. Where in the New Testament does it say that baptism, infant baptism, replaces circumcision as a sign of the New Covenant? It's not found in your Bibles. And also I'd say nowhere in the New Testament do biblical authors declare that infants should be baptized. On the contrary, the norm in the New Testament is for believers to be baptized after they believe in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation and repent of their sin. That is, the New Testament teaches not infant baptism, but believer's baptism. Believer's baptism. Consequently, the sign of circumcision is not replaced, but neither are we required biblically to continue the sign. Since the New Covenant neither requires infant baptism or circumcision, we are required to do neither of them biblically. There might be other reasons for circumcision today, but it's not because of the biblical requirement placed upon us. Let's move on into the next section about Sarah. Sarah, uh, God gives instruction to her in verses 15 through 16. And again, I just encourage you to follow along in this study, and then we'll see how it's so applicable to us at the end here. Verse 15 and 16, let's start reading about what God says about Sarah. It says, And God said to Abram, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall uh, not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Here in verses uh, 15 and 16, God starts his fourth speech, and this one is about Sarai. God explains she too is going to be blessed. She'll give birth to a son. And on account of this, all of this, God decides to change her name like he did Abraham. God changes her name from Sarai, which means my princess. Uh, the suffix I, when put on the end of a word, means my in Hebrew. So like Eli, ever heard that Old Testament name? The word El means God. You put I at the end, my God. Sarai means my princess. Her name is changed to Sarah, which simply means princess or the princess. And while I don't think it's really clear, especially like why the name change, uh, the, the best solution I can give to you this is, is that I think God is universalizing Sarah's role in this world. It, 
it goes beyond. She's going to be a blessing to more than just Abraham, but to multitudes of people. So it goes from like my princess, or for some reason when I was thinking of this, I kept thinking my little princess. I know that's not. You know, it goes from Abraham's little princess to the princess. And kings are actually going to come from her. Well, to this blessing, Abram responds in verses 17 and 18. So far throughout the text, God has been doing all the speaking. But Abram has one line. He's got a one-liner here in verses 17 and 18. It reminds me of, you know, some of us, and uh, this is the season, time of the year for, like, school plays and stuff. And uh, perhaps your, your breaking into the school play was a one-liner. It seemed like that was all the, the, the roles I ever received in acting growing up. My first play, I still remember my line. Will help Salty eat the record. I have no idea what it means to this day. <laughs> no idea, but I do by lot. Abram's got one line here. <clears throat> now, he'll say some things to himself, <clears throat> then he's going to say some things to God. Look at verse 17. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, here it is, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Well, Abram's response to God's forced speech starts out quite well. It, it, it's just like verse 3. He falls on his face. Again, I think it's an act of worship. He's worshiping again. It's as appropriate for him as God is, you know, El Shaddai is revealing himself to him. But, but then we come to the main interpretive question in these two little verses, and that is, why does Abraham laugh, and what does that mean? Or how do we interpret this laugh? We, we know that even in our world today, when someone's la someone laughs, there can be a whole host of reasons for their laughing. Or a whole host of different intentions as to why they're laughing. They could be laughing out of mockery. They could be just deriding you, making fun of you, and that's why they laugh. They could be laughing out of astonishment at something. I just couldn't believe like, this happened. They just started laughing. You're laughing out of joy. There's a whole host of reasons. And when we try to interpret it today, we have to like, look around the context. Okay, I need to interpret his face, his eyes, what he said before and after. Is he being nice to me? Or is he mocking me? And with Abraham, I think there are two possibilities. I think it could be, and uh, perhaps there are more, and you could tell me, but the way I see it, there could be two possibilities. I think it may be that he laughs out of skepticism or unbelief. He's 99 years of age, and so he hears this, he's just like, okay, <laughs> This is not going to happen. Or it could be that he laughs out of wonder or astonishment or joy, something like that. And so we have to look around the context, too, to try to figure out, okay, what's Abraham's laughing all about, and is there anything in the context that can help us understand that? And I would say, you know, that's when we just keep reading in verse 17, where you see the next questions that he asked to himself. I think those questions there... In verse 17, I think those could be asked out of unbelief, skepticism, or out of astonishment. 
And uh, yet, I think it might lean us a little bit more towards skepticism. I think Abraham is not quite sure how God can do this. He knows he's beyond the age of producing children, and so I think he might be skeptical here, like Sarai later. Now, you might object to that and say, yeah, yeah, but what about what Paul says later in the New Testament about Abraham and his faith? like in Romans 4. Do you remember Romans 4? Okay, I'm just going to read it to you. You don't need to read that, but so you might object to what I'm saying because of Romans 4. In Romans 4, Paul says, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years of age, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise, but he grew strong in his faith and he, as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that what God, that, that God was able to do what he had promised. So you say, Pastor Brent, doesn't that prove that he must have been joyous instead of being skeptical when he laughs? But my perspective on this is I think Abram grows stronger in his faith as a result of this interaction with God, especially out of what's going to come in verses 18 and 19. So Abram says, he asks these questions to himself, how can this be? I'm so old, Sarah's so old, and then he has his one-liner. Oh, that Ishmael would live before you. I think this is Abram's suggestion to God about how he can fulfill the promises. Oh, that Ishmael would be the means of the covenant promise. And then you read God's answer right after that. Verse 19, no. God said no. And so I think that it, this perhaps could be out of skepticism, but God rejects Abram's suggestion, and he gives Abram one final word about his sons, Isaac and Ishmael. So look at verses 19 through 21, speech 5. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So God gets very specific here about what he's going to do through Sarah and what he's going to do through uh, Ishmael. This passage, God explains that it will indeed be through Sarah that he will accomplish his purposes. God will give her a son. His name will be called Isaac, which if you looked it up in the little note at the bottom of your Bible, you see that uh, the word Isaac means he laughs. He laughs. This is going to be a fitting name. His name will be a continual reminder that God can overcome what makes Abraham laugh. He thinks of this as an impossibility. With God, all things are possible. With man, maybe not so much, but with God, anything is possible. And he says very specifically, this is going to happen within a year. Sarah's going to conceive in about three months, and she's going to have a son within the year. God, however, will not neglect Ishmael. He, too, will be blessed by God. He'll be fruitful and multiply. And princes, the text says, not kings, princes will come from him. 
Having made these final statements about Ishmael and Isaac, God is done speaking. He's made it clear how Abraham should respond to the covenant, but the narrative is not quite finished. And I want you to see the way Abram responds in verses 22 through 27. So God's done speaking. Now Abraham needs to respond. Look at verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, and bought with his money every male among the men of Abram's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. And this is where I think the relevance of this text will become more real to us as New Covenant followers of Jesus. Here, after God departs from Abram, Abraham immediately obeys the instruction he's received from God. Abraham does not pause when God tells him what he's supposed to do. Imagine how difficult this conversation would be between Abraham and all the men of his household. He doesn't pause. He doesn't ask God, you want me to do what? Why would I agree to do that? How am I going to talk all these other men into this? Now, Abraham does not set up a committee to talk about it for two weeks with representatives from the men of his household. No, he obeys immediately, and he leads others to do so because God has spoken. El Shaddai has issued a command. And so he obeys. You notice that Moses twice explains in this text that disobedience occurred on that very day. Did you see that in your Bible? That repetition is meant for emphasis. In, in the Old Testament, you know, Torah, you couldn't bold and italicize things. They didn't underline things. They didn't circle things. They repeated things to emphasize them. And twice in this text, it says, on that very day. He obeys, and so do those of his household. And obedience this day for Abram brought him personal pain and potential relational strife, yet, yet he did what God had made clear to him. El Shaddai, the Almighty One, was bigger to Abram than any of the people around him and any of his own physical comforts. He was going to do exactly what God told him to do. Perhaps you've delayed obeying something that God has made clear to you because of the personal sacrifice or pain that it might cause you. Or perhaps you've delayed it because of the potential for relational strife in your family or in your church. Or perhaps it's been too long since you've heard our God speak in His Word or been struck with his almighty power and being. 
As we close today, I invite you to consider, to consider the immediate and radical obedience of Abraham, who, who was told clearly by God what he should do, and on that very day, decides to follow through, despite the personal pain or the relational strife it might bring. As we close, I invite you to stand there at your seat and bow your head and close your eyes, and I want to give you just a moment to reflect upon how this text might be applicable to you. So I invite you to stand if you would, bow your heads, close your eyes, and I just want to give you a moment to, to pray to the Lord and to ask him how this text is applicable to you. Abraham immediately obeys when God makes it clear what he should do. As you go to the Lord, perhaps you could pray something like this. You could say, God, would you make known your almighty power and presence to me? God, this text reveals you as El Shaddai, the Almighty One. You are the one that makes nature bend to your will. You could bring life to a dead womb and a man who is good as dead. Nothing is impossible for you, God. Father, make known your almighty power and your presence to me. Perhaps you could pray to God and ask him to empower you to obey his clear commands in your life, in your family, even if it means sacrifice. Perhaps standing against the deceitful practices at your workplace. God's made it clear to you, you can't be involved in these sort of things. So you say, Lord, help me to be willing to stand, even if it means personal sacrifice for me. Perhaps it's saying no to the sinful indulgences that have worked their way into your family's entertainment or values. And to go against the grain and say, these things just aren't, it's not scriptures would teach. And be willing to do that, even if it means sacrifice or potential relational strife. Fathers, we come before you. We ask you for grace to be able to obey you immediately, to do so graciously, too. But Lord, help us not to delay. Help us to obey, like Abraham. Lord, we're thankful that in the new covenant, we are accepted by Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. If there is someone here today, Father, who does not know Jesus, I pray that they would see how, gr how good it is, how gracious it is for, for you to make our eyes open. I pray that you would open their eyes to behold that. I thank you, Lord, that even as we sung at the very beginning of our worship gathering, that our sins, not in part, but the whole, have been nailed to his cross. Thank you, Lord, that that's true of those of us who accept Christ as Savior. And Lord, as we close in song, I pray that you'd be honored and glorified. I pray that we would be willing to obey and to pursue you this week. In Jesus' name, amen. This time I invite the worship team to come forward and they're going to lead us in our final song. And the song is, What Can I Do? Uh, one of my favorite songs to sing, and so I invite you to sing along with us.